Welcome to the Granta Podcast. I'm Saskia Vogel. On February 29th, I had the pleasure of interviewing Jeanette Winterson about her memoir, Why Be Happy When You Can Be Normal, available now from Jonathan Cape in the UK and Grove Press in the US. Winterson is a longtime contributor to the magazine and was a Granta Best Young British Novelist in 1993. When I met her at the Random House offices, we talked about recurring character names, truth and fiction in memoir, evangelism, and the pleasure of Twitter. This is the opening of From Why Be Happy When You Could Be Normal, Chapter 1, The Wrong Crib. When my mother was angry with me, which was often, she said, The devil led us to the wrong crib. The image of Satan taking time off from the Cold War and McCarthyism to visit Manchester in 1960, the purpose of visit to deceive Mrs Winterson, has a flamboyant theatricality to it. She was a flamboyant depressive, a woman who kept a revolver in the duster drawer and the bullets in a tin of pledge. A woman who stayed up all night baking cakes to avoid sleeping in the same bed as my father. A woman with a prolapse, a thyroid condition, an enlarged heart, an ulcerated leg that never healed, and two sets of false teeth, mat for every day, and a pearlized set for best. I don't know why she didn't, couldn't have children. I know that she adopted me because she wanted a friend. She had none. And because I was like a flare sent out into the world, a way of saying that she was here, a kind of X marks the spot. She hated being a nobody. And like all children, adopted or not, I have had to live out some of her unlived life. We do that for our parents. We don't really have any choice. She was alive when my first novel, Oranges Are Not the Only Fruit, was published in 1985. It is semi-autobiographical in that it tells the story of a young girl adopted by Pentecostal parents. The girl is supposed to grow up and be a missionary. Instead, she falls in love with a woman. Disaster. The girl leaves home, gets herself to Oxford University, returns home to find her mother has built a broadcast radio and is beaming out the gospel to the heathen. The mother has a handle. She's called Kindly Light. The novel begins... Like most people, I lived for a long time with my mother and father. My father liked to watch the wrestling. My mother liked to wrestle. I can't remember a time when I wasn't setting my story against hers. It was my survival from the very beginning. Adopted children are self-invented because we have to be. There's an absence, a void, a question mark at the very beginning of our lives... A crucial part of our story is gone, and violently, like a bomb in the womb. The baby explodes into an unknown world, a world only knowable through some kind of a story. And of course that's how we all live, it's the narrative of our lives. But adoption drops you into the story after it has started. It's like reading a book with the first few pages missing. It's like arriving after curtain up. The feeling that something is missing never, ever leaves you. And it can't, and it shouldn't, because something is missing. That isn't of its nature negative. The missing part, the missing past, can be an opening, not a void. It can be an entry, 
as well as an exit. It is the fossil record, the imprint of another life. And although you can never have that life, your fingers trace the space where it might have been, and your fingers learn a kind of braille. There are markings here, raised like welts. Read them. Read the hurt. Rewrite them. Rewrite the hurt. It's why I'm a writer. I don't say decided to be or became. It was not an act of will or even a conscious choice. To avoid the narrow mesh of Mrs. Winterson's story, I had to be able to tell my own. Part fact, part fiction is what life is. And it is always a cover story. I wrote my way out. She said, but it's not true. Truth. This was a woman who explained the flash dash of mice activity in the kitchen as ectoplasm. There was a terraced house in Accrington in Lancashire. We called those houses two up, two down. Two rooms downstairs, two rooms upstairs. Three of us lived together in that house for 16 years. I told my version, faithful and invented, accurate and misremembered, shuffled in time. I told myself as hero like any shipwreck story. It was a shipwreck, and me thrown on the coastline of humankind and finding it not altogether human and rarely kind. And I suppose that the saddest thing for me, thinking about the cover version that is oranges, is that I wrote a story I could live with. The other one was too painful. I could not survive it. This is a story called All I Know About Gertrude Stein, and I wrote it for Granter's F-word issue. Here's the beginning. In 1907... A woman from San Francisco named Alice B. Totless arrived in Paris. She was going to meet a fellow American living there already. She was excited because she'd heard a lot about Gertrude Stein. In 2011, a woman from London named Louise was travelling by Eurostar to Paris. Louise was troubled. Louise was travelling alone because she was trying to understand something about love. Louise was in a relationship. It felt like a ship, though her vessel was a small boat rowed by herself with a cabin for her lover. The lover's ship was much bigger and carried crew and passengers. There was always a party going on. Her lover was at the centre of a busy world. Louise was her own world, self-contained, solitary, intense. She did not know how to reconcile these opposites, if opposites they were, and to make things more complicated, it was Louise who wanted the two of them to live together. Her lover said no, they were good as they were. And the solitary Louise and the sociable lover could not be in the same boat. And so Louise was travelling alone to Paris. I am Louise. I took the metro to Cité. I walked past Notre Dame and I thought of the hunchback Quasimodo swinging his misshapen body across the bell ropes of love for Esmeralda. Quasimodo was a deaf mute. Cupid is blind. Freud called love an overestimation of the object. But I would swing through the ringing world for you. Alice Toklas had no previous experience of love. <laughs> 
Her mother died young, young for the mother and young for Alice. And Alice played the piano and kept house for her father and her brothers. She ordered the meat, managed the budget, supervised the kitchen. And then she came to Paris and met Gertrude Stein. Gertrude Stein's mother died young too, and you never fully recover from that. Actually, you never recover at all. You take it with you as an open wound. But with luck, that is not the end of the story. Gertrude had a modest but sufficient private income. She and her brother Leo had long since left the USA to set up house in Paris in the Rue de Fleurou. Gertrude wrote, Leo painted. They bought modern art. They bought Matisse when no one did, and they bought Picasso when no one did. Pablo and Gertrude became great friends. But Gertrude was lonely. Gertrude was a writer. Gertrude was lonely. I find myself returning again and again to the same familiar condition of solitariness. Is it sex that makes this happen? If it were not for sex, wouldn't we each be content with our friends, their companionship and confidences? I love my friends. I am a good friend. But with my lover, I begin to feel alone. A friend of mine can be happy without a lover. She'll have an affair if she wants one, but she doesn't take the trouble to love. I do very badly without a lover. I pine, I sigh, I sleep, I dream. I set the table for two and I stare into the empty chair. I could invite a friend and sometimes I do, but that's not the point. The point is that I'm always wondering where you are, even when you don't exist. Sometimes I have affairs, but though I enjoy the bed, I feel angry at the fraud, the closeness without the cost. I know what the cost is. The more I love you, the more I feel alone. On the 23rd of May, 1907, Gertrude Stein met Alice B. Toklas. Gertrude, fat, sexy, genial, powerful. Alice, a tiny unicorn, nervous, clever, watchful, determined. When Gertrude opened the door to the atelier of 27 Rue de Fleurou, Alice tried to sit down, but couldn't because the chairs were Stein size and Alice was Toklas size and her feet did not reach the floor. The world keeps turning round and round, said Gertrude, but you have to sit somewhere. Thank you so much. Jeanette, it's a pleasure to be here with you today and... I was wondering, you've been a long-time contributor to Granta, and I was wondering if the formal constraints of the short form um, shape your pieces, and if the short pieces have projected themselves into longer ones. And something I noticed yesterday, I was rereading your story in The Body, and noticed that the protagonist was also called Louise, mm. and so I was wondering if it's the same Louise. So there are many <laughs> questions, but please... I get obsessed with names from time to time. Um, in, in Lighthouse Keeping, there's a character called Silver who then reappears in my book for children, Tanglewreck. It's not the same Silver. Um, but somewhere in my head there's a connection, and so I play with that. And, and yes, uh, I did want to have two Louises. I'm not altogether sure why, except that the, the main character in Written on the Body that I wrote 20 years ago is also called Louise. So what's going on there? I don't know. How does the mind make its patterns? But it pleases me. And, and the short form, I mean, the, sh the shorter the better, really, which is why I'm, I'm rather excited by really short things, and um, whether it's haiku or, or, or Twitter and, 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 and little tweets. I, I like 
tweeting because I like making the thing exciting within the, within the space allowed. I don't feel it's ridiculous. I feel it's a challenge. Um, when I first began, I was very worried about the novel. This was in 1985. I mean, the novel, as far as I was concerned, not in its own right, because I didn't know how I would be able to... Um, Fuse my own style of writing into something which just seemed so so so, so capacious and and saggy that you could do anything with it, but you couldn't keep it tight. And I really wanted to keep it tight. Mm-hmm. And obviously, it was writers like Calvino who I could look at, say, with Invisible Cities, who were able to just chop things up and, and keep it small and not worry about it. Um, because poetry was the thing that really interested me, and I wanted to bring that exactness and muscularity, the, the tautness of line and language, um, necessarily present in the poem. Um, into the wider space of fiction, so that the one perhaps would strengthen the other, so that you would get the you get the spread, the canvas, the possibility of telling a story, mm. um, but you'd also also get the urgency of language, because I didn't want language to be uh, printed television. You know, I wanted the words to matter, um, and I, I hoped that people would read at the right speed for what I wanted to say. You know, there is a problem with speed reading Mm. and just reading down the middle of the page like you do in airports because you don't then get the sense of the language. When we read a poem, um, immediately our brain says, slow down, this is a poem. We read a poem differently, Mm. um, uh, much far differently and far slower than we do with fiction. So I thought, how can I... How can I somehow force my reader to read at the speed at which I write? And one of the ways I did it was always to be breaking up the narrative or forcing an intervention or a pause. Like you do in in, in the story, in the exactly. novel about uh, yeah. Stein. Yeah, yeah. Um, and it's often very useful for me to be mixing uh, either two narrators or, or two or more narratives because that, that makes your brain work. Your brain can't suddenly think, oh, I know where I am because the, you know, the brain is the laziest thing on the planet <laughs> and the moment the brain thinks, hey, I've got this, you know, whether it's your exercise in the gym or the book you're reading, it makes no more effort. So you have to somehow keep the brain working. Sure. But also the, um, the way you play and incorporate sort of the mythic and science and literary history in this case mm. into your stories, it creates a wonderful dialogue and it makes these things that can seem so fixed, they, it puts them in, in motion. Mm. Um, and I was wondering how you feel about fiction as a vehicle for uh, you know, deepening or advancing uh, thought about history and sort of breaking easy categorization. For example, the, the fixity of, of a religious text as this is the way it is. Or in your rewriting of um, the story of Orion, which, mm. was, which I think it was home. The granta, it was home, yeah. 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 So is, do you find fiction versus nonfiction a particularly mm. useful um, tool to, to explore these ideas? Well, I think there's lots of questions there. I think you're right about um, keeping the thing in motion. I think that's a very nice way of putting it. Um, because that's what it is. It's not static, it's not fixed. As you say, it is about motion um, and keeping the thing fluid and therefore possible. You know, when something's moving, it can change. Mm. You know, when it's stopped dead, it can't change at all. Um, and I, I'm interested in things, in the dialogue continuing, that the relationship continuing between um, writer and reader. I don't think I make hard categories between fiction and non-fiction. I mean, obviously, you know, we're not talking about history or, or social economics here. Right. You know, that's different. But I think... In in the land of reality TV, we've got a bit obsessed about what what the what is the tick box real and what is the invented. It just isn't like that. Mm. Um, I think it's a very crude distinction. And I, I was entertained the other day when I see that um, 
uh, cognitive psychology um, is now finally caught up with what writers have known for so long, <laughs> thousands of years, that the past is not in fact fixed, that we don't have a memory and return to it. We're mm. always rewriting the memory. The memory itself is an act of narrative. They're so delighted with this. You think, did you ever read any books when you were little children? <laughs> Obviously not. Um, but uh, this is this is the grand new thing that's going to be coming on the market in a minute from the science department. Um, that that it's that memory is an act of narrative. That it's always an interpretation. But of course, Freud knew that. I mean, Jesus, mm. the, one of the grand masters of narrative. The whole reason why we can go back in and fix something um, is because it's it's not simply stuck in time. It can mm. be redeemed from time, re-understood, reinterpreted, and therefore reabsorbed into the body I suppose so it's not locked anymore you know sometimes I think that our past life it's like having a lead deposit that mimics calcium <laughs> and sits in the bones you know and you need to release it you know you, it, it's a way of releasing both unhappy memories and making space for new experiences I think fiction allows that to happen mm. you know that's, that's why you're right to call it movement it's a movement through the body that's really interesting I was curious about this in relation to Oranges Are Not the Only Fruit in the mm. Memoir. I was wondering if, having written a fictive narrative that was, as far as I understand, heavily, well, that was heavily influenced mm. by actual, um, well, things that happened, did, does having written Oranges impact how you recall, how you recalled and wrote parts of the memoir that drew from that time? Um, you know, when you... Uh, have a memory of something and then you see a photograph and then the photograph in a way overtakes perhaps a, a more primal sensory memory that mm. your memory becomes associated with the photograph rather than the thing that actually mm. happened. I was wondering if there was that kind of interplay in writing mm. the memoir. Well, I think you're right that you have to trust the feeling. I think um, that's very important in, in our memory or, and our remembering in that very often we have a feeling tone straight away which we then try and edit out or in, in some way either compromise or because it's uncomfortable Mm-hmm. Um, and those things are often very true because I think I do think the body has a memory a stored memory as well as somewhere as, as the mind um, and often we're false to ourselves because something is uncomfortable or joyous in some way that now makes us uncomfortable. Mm. Um, and we think, no, no. So then we try and reinterpret. Um, so we objectify our past um, to fit the present that we're in now. Mm. Um, so we, you know, we, often, we are our own worst witnesses, but I suppose that's necessary. Um, and I think fiction can at least reveal that process. But I think thinking of a life um, in, in one part of the book you wrote, reading yourself as a fiction as well as a fact mm. is the only way to keep the narrative I've, I really believe that. It, it does seem mm. so true, um, especially, as you mentioned, every narrative, even reality TV, is something that's carefully, carefully constructed. And in one, uh, in, your, in the section of the memoir called Intermission, you jump 25 <laughs> years in time. And I really, I really like that. I, I didn't feel like there was anything missing that I needed you to account for the fact of mm. 25 years but it made me wonder thinking of um, you know omission theory or the idea of writing as just showing the tip of the iceberg but that great looming thing is unspoken mm. and underneath do you feel that there's a omission has a different function in memoir versus fiction well 
Memoir itself is a tricky word, isn't it? You see, the publishers like a label, so they call it a memoir. I don't call Why I'd Be Happy a memoir. Um, it certainly isn't an autobiography, as you say, so I've missed out 25 years. Um, I think of it as an experiment with experience, mm. but clearly you can't sell it as that because it needs to go on the shelf that says memoir. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's, it's an unfortunate word because it, does, it, it suggests something um, more recollected than I am doing because I'm still working with the material. Mm-hmm. Um, that, that's a problem, I suppose, in the way that we try and understand things. But it is a companion to oranges. But I do believe that what we look for is authenticity. That it's, It has to be something genuine. If I have a relationship with the material, whether or not it happened to me, whether or not I invented it, then that will translate itself to the reader. Hmm. Because we always meet on the steps of the story. That's the geography that is between us. And it doesn't matter whether I have invented that story or whether it's an invention of something from the, my own past, which I've played with. Hmm. Um, because whatever happens, it passes through me, doesn't it? I'm the conduit, I'm the medium. So I'm in everything. My imprint is hmm. there, or whatever I do. So I think for a writer, it's a very curious distinction, this whole fiction fact thing. It's not one I'm very comfortable with. So the question not to ask is, how did you come to memoir at this point in your <laughs> yeah, life? Yeah, you can, because it, that's a good, that is a good question to ask, in that I had no intention of writing it. It was simply that, in the search for my biological mother, which was disturbing and upsetting, um, and interestingly, prompted amnesiac responses rather than memory responses. So um, I thought I must keep a close journal of what's happening to me mm. because I can't cope with this and so my brain will shut down. So I was really, I was saving myself from myself there by doing that or forcing myself into something. Um, and I showed some of it to my agent because I was thinking of writing a piece about adoption for a newspaper because it's such a tricky subject. And she said, look, there's something enormous here. Why don't you just go home and work with it for a bit and see what happens? Mm. And then, of course, I realised that dealing with what, the evolving present was forcing me to go back to Wintersome World and see right. what had happened there and look at it differently in the light of what I was doing. So because I've never been able to write anything sequentially, um, the memoir was no exception. So in fact it was written in series, uh, and um, the the first part was was done simultaneously with the second part, Mm. and then they came together. You know, there were parallel lines that actually did meet in space. But there's that kind of honesty about memory, and I think you write something to the effect of... um, the only way you can write is in these sort of layered forms, layering things over yes. each other. Because in a way, don't you think that's how memory works? It has holes, it shifts, we make things bigger and, and smaller, mm. and, and there's no kind of direct... I think that's there. exactly so. Um, and it does change. Um, it's odd. And, and it's better that it should be like that, because then we're not... We, you know, we have people seem to get rigid as they get older. I think mm. that's because they're afraid of their own memory deposits and actually of using them well instead of simply keeping them like something in a display cabinet. That's really interesting. Now, one thing that um, comes across very much in the book and in past interviews that I've I've read, you have such a keen attentiveness to the reader-writer relationship and it feels both in the moment of reading and also the way we carry writing with us, either through the ideas that a piece will spark in in your mind or in the sort of communal experience of going to a public reading event Mm. Um, which I love I love public events yeah I mean it's the it's the community of storytelling Mm. that we don't have as solitary readers Mm. I think and well I guess your work highlights how deeply interactive reading is and I was wondering if you think Mm. this part of the reading experience gets overlooked 
Yes, but I think it won't in the future, which is interesting. As we seem to be going for more collective shared experiences, because we seem to need them, because we all feel so fractured and isolated, I suppose, um, I think live events are going to become more and more important. I mean, they are already in poetry. Mm. Um, and it would be good if perhaps readers take on a sec- I mean, writers take on a second training as readers. It's all right for me, because I was brought up in a gospel tent. Um, <laughs> but there's something really marvellous about being in connection with your audience um, and discussing things with that audience. I don't think there's anything better. I really love it. And, of course, it may just be that I'm still an evangelical and I want to save souls, um, because I do. You know, when I get on the stage and I'm doing a reading, I look round and I think, I want everybody in this room to go out with something. Mm. So that's very evangelical, which is desperate. <laughs> um, but... I, you know, for me, literature does make a difference, and it's about communicating that. So it is a twofold function. It's the silent privacy. It's the lover's talk, really, of you and the book, which is when you're just at home with the text and, and, and somebody's whispering in your ear, which is how it feels, and being very intimate with you. Um, and then, then there's that thrilling space where you're with other people sharing something that you're all interested in. Mm. And they run together, um, which is why, for me, books are so unruly and wild and, and unpredictable, because they do both things at once. Um, you know, they are your lover and they're also your audience. That's interesting. I I was wondering about the reaction, read, reader reaction to memoir or maybe even interviewer reaction to memoir versus fiction. Um, do you think that the something called memoir solicits more intimate response than a novel or maybe I, intrusive? I don't know. <laughs> That's interesting because I think... Usually, you know, I, I can have a pretty bouncy ride with the press. I'm in a period of grace at the moment. One thing I've realised in Britain is that if you if you just hang around for long enough, so I've just 27 years and they haven't been able to kill me or stop me writing, they kind of think, oh, great, you know, we'll, we like her now. So <laughs> <they> just <laughs> It's the most extraordinary thing. that, that you've, <laughs> If they can't kill you, they have to accept you. So I guess I'm in that place, um, which is quite funny for me. But... Um, as far as I know, things have gone very well with Why Be Happy. I mean, it's sold a lot and it's had a good response. And I think there's only been one or two strange responses, um, one of which I think was Adam Mars-Jones in the, in the London Review of Books, mm. which um, I heard about when I was in New Orleans, which apparently was very curious. Um, and, but again, that, that's, I think that was a very personal approach because what Adam didn't say was that he was the, one of the first people to see the manuscript of Oranges 27 years ago and advised me not to continue. Oh, gosh. <laughs> that bit was missed out. So, you know how the New York Times always says, is there any reason why you shouldn't review this book? In Adam's case, the answer was yes. <laughs> but um, nobody asked that question. So I think you always run up against some sort of trouble, whatever you write. You'll always hit it somewhere. Um, and I think that's natural and normal and shouldn't, nobody should worry about it. But what you really want is to have the ordinary reader reading the book and being moved by it. Mm. And to me, that's a measure of success. It's not, in the end, what the reviews say. Um, it's what people say to me. And the strange thing is, and I was in New Orleans and I heard about this um, rather strange, long piece. Um, a woman had just come up to me in, in floods of tears and she just said, my mother and I read this book together and she said we've had a terrible relationship and she said and then she crawled into bed with me and held me and it was the first time she'd done that in 30 years oh gosh and then you think you know you've done something yeah absolutely yeah well thank you so much for (laughs) the interview and we look forward to reading more i hope you've enjoyed the granted podcast thanks for listening